0: This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen, kiwi and Ultragenics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the expert's academic institution, employer, organisation or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello and welcome to the second podcast in our series covering rare bone disease highlights from ASBMR 2021. Today we have the privilege to be joined by Dr Oliver Semmler who is the head of the Department of Rare Skeletal Diseases in Childhood at the University Hospital Cologne, Germany. Welcome Dr Semmler.
1: Hello, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to summarise some of the really interesting and fascinating talks I've heard uh, today at the ASBMR meeting.
0: In this episode, Dr Semler will be sharing key insights on the rare bone disease data from day two of the conference. So Dr Semler, I know you have selected a number of oral and poster presentations for us to discuss today, and perhaps we can start with the EMPP1-related data. Which abstracts in particular stood out for you and why?
1: And pp one deficiency is characterized by arterial calcification and it leads in the patients to a lethality of around 50% during infancy. The reason of this is that in the normal calcification process in the body, pyrophosphate inhibit the ectopic formation of hydroxyapatite crystals. And in patients with ENPP1 deficiency, you have this ectopic formation of crystals and ectopic calcification. And this topic was analyzed by one poster presentation by Carlos Ferreira about uh, ENPP1-deficient patients and their skeletal phenotype. They have analyzed a group of 127 uh, patients with general arterial calcification and they did molecular diagnostics in them and identified 84 patients with an ENPP1 deficiency. And then they looked for the skeletal phenotype and saw that around 50% of them presented with ricket-like x-rays and impaired mineralization on the long bones. And they conclude that this ricket-like appearance is an important point as differential diagnosis to other ricket-like diseases, because normally you don't think about a hypercalcification disease um, if you have an x-ray which shows an impaired mineralization. So, this difference between calcification in the soft tissue and the undermineralization of the long bones is something they referred to and which is important for the clinical diagnostics and for the phenotyping in these patients. Currently, the treatment of choice for those patients is an enzyme replacement therapy, which prevents the calcification of the vessels and restore also a bit of the skeletal phenotype. But this is a treatment which has to be given twice a week and the company is aiming for a new treatment approach and gene therapy to correct the mutation and to correct the enpp one deficiency, and that was presented by Kevin O'Brien in his talk, Treatment with an AAV vector expressing enpp one uh, FC to prevent ectopic tissue calcification. So the aim of their trial was in a mouse model and in cell culture to build up or create An viral vector to improve the situation of the patients and to test this in a mouse model. They firstly tested different vectors and doses. And then in the animal models, they performed the final analysis 10 weeks after they've treated them with the vector. And what they've seen was that already very early after the injections, the pyrophosphate levels increased. And after 10 weeks, they measured an decreased tissue calcification and also an improved mineralization of the bones with a reduced ricket-like phenotype. So in conclusion, they had quite good results in the animal models to correct the ENPP1 deficiency with this viral treatment, which is a goal-directed therapeutic approach. And the next steps would be to see which would be the lowest um, effective dose and then to do the safety assessments to go on to a clinical trial. So these were the most important information um, I found regarding enpp one deficiency during today's presentations.
0: That's great. Thanks for that summary, Dr. Semler. So in your opinion, does this data have any impact on clinical practice for patients with enpp one deficiency at this stage?
1: Well, as clinical implications, I think probably the most important thing was presented in the presentation by Carlos Ferreira in the poster, because normally if you have a ricket like x-ray, which is normally done due to bowing of long bones, then you try to find the diagnosis and you look for vitamin D and maybe phosphate levels, but to keep ENPP1 as a differential diagnosis for ricket-like um, x-ray is something which I think should be part of clinical routine in the future, because that's not always a common approach.
0: Thank you for sharing those insights. Perhaps now we can consider the data related to fibrodysplasia vesificans progressiva. Uh, again, which abstracts really stood out for you and why in this particular area?
1: Well, regarding the FOP, there were three interesting presentations focusing on the uh, disease, which is characterized by heterotropic ossification uh, due to minimal traumata. And this very rare bone disease is a progressive disease with limiting mobility, joint contractures, and reduced life expectancy in the patients. And the first uh, presentation I have chosen um, is uh, a poster presented by Pignolo about the results of the MOVE trial, which was or is a clinical trial where patients with a genetically confirmed FOP were treated with palovarotin, which is a daily oral treatment and the results focus on the development of new ossifications and especially the volume of neo-heterotropic ossifications compared to a natural history cohort. And the results of this trial which were here presented was that the annualized neo heterotrophic ossifications were Decreased by 57% in the treated group after 18 months' treatment period. So these data are very promising, but the drug has some side effects in many patients. The side effects caused by the retinoic acid have been described, which are predominantly mucocutaneous problems in the mouth and and a second side effect um, which caused an interim stop of the trial was that a premature epifusial closure was described with a growth retardation in children and adolescents who still had open growth plates. So at the moment The treatment is limited to patients after the closure of the growth plate. But if you look at the results, it's a very promising therapeutic approach for the future. This is, of course, not the only therapeutic approach for the disease. It's a very very complex pathway in the cell, signaling pathway with a lot of side arms and different treatment possibilities and one idea to improve the treatment for FOP is the blocking of the activin A receptor and uh, this was investigated by another group and presented here at the conference by Zara Hatzel with an ACVR1 antibody and the effect on FOP. And this was a nice talk and a a very honest uh, talk because to their surprise by blocking the Activin A receptor, they saw that they had an increase of heterotropic ossifications in their FOP mouse model. Normally by blocking the receptor, you would expect to have a reduced ossification. And this is also shown in normal healthy mice in which you can induce a trauma. And then um, by blocking the ACV receptor, you see that the ossification is reduced, but in the FOP mice model, it's not the case. The mice react somehow different. And in conclusion, the ACV receptor one antibodies are definitely not a therapeutic option for FOP patients. So I thought this is really an interesting presentation and also a good example that in science, if you think of a good idea, it's not always the case that it turns out to be a perfect treatment approach. As final presentation regarding the FOP, there was one presentation by Jessica Pierce about the microbiome contribution to HOs. Inflammatory processes play an important role in the formation of heterotropic HOs in FOP and they tried to reduce the HO formation by reducing the inflammatory activities in the mice. And they did an antibiotic ablation in FOP mice. And then they measured the appearance of HOs and saw a reduction of HO volume in the treated mice. Of course, this is a treatment with a lot of side effects and they tried to rescue the immune phenotype by some bone marrow monocytes, which they transplanted, which in the first data seems to work so that the impairing or reducing of the inflammatory processes in the mice seems to be a beneficial therapeutic approach to improve the situation in these FOP mice and to reduce the occurrence of HIV.
0: Thank you, Dr. Semmler. So in your opinion, and based on the data that you've heard at ASBMR today, do you see the management of FOP evolving at all in the near future?
1: Regarding the treatment of FOP, there's a lot of activity and a lot of good ideas um, how to improve the care of the patients. Some trials, some assessments are more beneficial than others, as shown here, I think, Paloverotene seems to be one of the most developed and best approaches which are hopefully available soon. Other ways to influence the signaling pathways in the cell need to be investigated and preliminary results regarding influencing the inflammatory process seem to be beneficial. And this gives hope for this really severe disease where we... Currently, you have a high unmet need for new therapies.
0: So, Dr. Semler, do you have any take-home messages for the listeners regarding the past two days of rare bone disease presentations at ASBMR?
1: Well, um, first of all, I'm really happy that at the moment there's so much research going on in the rare bone diseases. That's something new, which only developed during the last few years, and that's really gives hope for the patients with these rare and severe diseases. I see that there is a lot of things in the preclinical stage which have promising data. And um, we see that if it comes to the clinical trials, things are much more complicated and new problems and side effects show up, which um, have not been in the focus in the preclinical trials, so I think there is a lot of reasons to hope that we can offer a better treatment in the future for these patients, but it's still a long way to go and need a lot of research and trials to find the best treatment for the patients and really a cure is still far away but it's really the right direction. And I think we are all motivated to improve the situation of the patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Semler, for sharing your valuable insights with us on this data and for taking the time to join us today. In addition, I would like to thank our listeners and we would encourage you to tune in to our other podcasts from the ASBMR 2021 series. Thank you again for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.